Welcome to the Radical Imagination Podcast, where we dive into the stories and solutions that are fueling change. I'm your host, Angela Glover-Blackwell. In this episode, we're going to reimagine gender. We'll glance at how far we've come as a society in terms of inclusion of LGBTQ folks and where we are in our understanding of gender. Just over 50 years ago in 1969, New York police raided an LGBTQ bar in Manhattan's Greenwich Village, sparking riots. Well, the next few nights really uh, were a repetition of the rioting. All of a sudden, a lot of gay people would appear on the streets in this whole area, not just in front of the Stonewall. The people demanded civil rights. They were rising up against a system that criminalized many simply for being gay. Last year, the NYPD apologized for its conduct during the Stonewall riots. The actions taken by the NYPD were wrong, plain and simple. The actions and the laws were discriminatory and oppressive, and for that, I apologize. Yet, while Americans have made some progress in their understanding and cultural acceptance of LGBTQ folks, some see the struggle of the transgender community in particular as the stonewall of today. Seven reported transgender murders in the first two months of this year, roughly one in ten physically attacked. At least 25 transgender and gender nonconforming people were murdered in 2019 alone. This is actually a conservative figure since many of these violent attacks go unreported. For more about the need to re-examine gender identity and how it is defined, we're joined by writer, journalist, and activist Teek Milan. Teek began his transition to a man more than a decade ago, and today he joins us from a studio in New York City to talk about his journey. Teek, welcome to Radical Imagination. Thank you so much for having me. Teek, you began your transition to a man back in 2007. What was life like for you growing up until the time you transitioned? Life before transitioning was was really good. Loving family, really classic kind of middle class American kind of life. Um, you know, and I'm I'm really really grateful for that. Um, prior to me coming out as transgender, um, you know, as an adult, and even before coming out as gay when I was a teenager, I was really a masculine kind of kid. You know, and my parents made space for it. There was no name for that back in the late 80s and the early 90s. It was just like, oh, Tika's a tomboy. And he got me my video games and my trucks and my matchbox cars. And, you know, my dad would take me on these long bike rides and, and trails and getting dirty. And it was, it was never a thing. They just really allowed me to be my best self and my most authentic self. So that was really key in me being able to transition in a way that felt good. And that was really supported as a lesbian when I was 14. You know, that was, you know, it was awkward, <laughs> uh, but it wasn't necessarily difficult. Um, my family got on board rather quickly. And then when I was in my early 20s, I came out as trans. And there was definitely some awkward moments there. Um, but my family definitely got on board again uh, really quickly. And what was really important for me when I came out as transgender, I came out to my mother first before I told anybody else in my family. Because it was her opinion that really meant the most to me. And it was like, my mother can love me and accept me. And everybody else, you know, kind of falls by the wayside. And so me coming out to her and having these really important conversations with her made her my ally, made her like my buffer. Could you talk more about the process of transitioning and what it was like for you and for the people around you who cared for you the most? Well, the process of transitioning is... um is really complicated. I think, you know, there's the medical transition, there's the legal transition. And I think the most complicated part of it is the social transition, which I'm still in that social transition. I'm really thinking about what it means to be a really good man in this world. 
Um, so when I started my medical transition, when you start testosterone, they start you on one cc of testosterone every like two weeks, right? And I was afraid to take that much because I was afraid of the changes, the physical changes, because I hadn't come out to my family yet. I was here in New York City. My family's from Buffalo. You know, I had this uh, barrier of like space, you know, of distance. So they didn't have to see me every day. But I was like, yo, I see my family all the time. I'm always going there to visit. If my physical body changes too much, you know, I'm going to let the cat out the bag, right? So I started off with just a fourth of a cc, like taking that like every two weeks. Now, let me tell you, testosterone is a hell of a hormone. (laughs) So even on that little bit of testosterone, I was going through physical changes, right? And I remember my mother calling me one day and she's like, I just got to ask you this. Why is your head so big? Like your head got bigger and your knuckles got darker. What is going on with you? And I was like, what's going on with you? I'm fine. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know? So I started my medical transition and I gradually built up to taking a full dose. And then once that started to happen, the facial hair started coming in. My voice started dropping. There was some really significant changes in my body. And I still hadn't told my family. Um, I was still, like, shaving my face and trying to lighten my voice when I went home or I wouldn't go home as often to, to see them. I really came out when it was time for me to have my top surgery. My mother was a nurse, and it was super important that I told her um, at that time. So I remember I called her while she was at work. She used to call me Tikaboo, right? She said, Tikaboo, what's up? I said, so listen, um, I am having a double mastectomy and chest reconstruction. I'm a man. Mm. <laughs> so that <laughs> that is exactly how I came out to my mother, right? Um and she's like freaking out on the phone, you know, and I was like, hey, listen, I love you. You said that you love me. You promised that you love me. So I don't know. I'm having this surgery in three days. <laughs> so if you can be here for me, that'd be awesome. So we hung up and I didn't hear from her for the three days. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm about to get wheeled into surgery. I'm about to get wheeled into surgery. And who walks in? Here comes my mom. She walks in there and she has this blue bear and she has these chocolates covered in like a blue foil, you know. Um, And she stayed there with me for the entire three days. And when I left the hospital after that, I think that that was when she really realized, started to really understand that she had a son now. You know, because I remember she told me like it felt like her daughter died. You know, and that was a really, really hard thing to hear. But I think we talked through that. And she realized it's not it wasn't there wasn't a death here. There's a transition. But like all of the love and the memories that we shared as mother and daughter informed the person that I am and informed the relationship that we were going to have as mother and son. You know, so we were able to really work through that. And also, I think with the, the physical and legal transition, changing your physical appearance, changing your name to something that is totally different than the name that you were born with. There is a grieving process there. There's a grief that so many people have to go through. So I went from being the youngest sister to the youngest brother, from an auntie to an uncle. Like this was something that people really had to grapple with, you know. So I also so there was like this this duality of like me coming into my best self and celebrating who I am, but also at the same time really trying to hold people's hands through the grief that they were feeling as they were making this transition with me. Another thing about my transition, which I've been really privileged with, is living here in New York City. So me getting access to hormones was fairly easy. 
me finding a community of other LGBTQ people and trans people. It's great. There's a huge community of folks here. Me changing my name and gender marker was really easy. And that is not the uh, story for a lot of trans folks, particularly trans folks in the South and in middle America who don't have this kind of access. Teak, you do a real service by talking about the legal, the physical, and the social. I don't think people often are able to separate those and think what it means to have them all happening at the same time. And I'm curious about your mother, though. I, I love to hear you talk about your mother. And once she got beyond the surprise and the worry and the grief, what was she worried about for you as you were going through this transition? My mother had went to see—my mother used to always like to go to the movies by herself. That was her thing, right? She'd go, like, the matinee. And she went to see Brokeback Mountain. Well, since we're going to be working together— I reckon it's time we start drinking together. You know, that last scene of Brokeback Mountain when they when they killed the, the one guy. She called me crying. She called me crying and she was like, I don't know if well, I would do if anybody would hurt you. It just scares me so much in that city and you're doing this whole trans thing. And I just don't know. And she's just boohoo crying. She was really, really worried about my safety. And she was really worried that no one was going to love me. I'd spent so many years in lesbian community, and, and I'm not a lesbian anymore, and it's awkward being in these exclusive, like, you know, women and female spaces. Um, and so now I'm, I'm a trans guy dating women, mostly, like, cisgender women, cisgender women who are not coming from LGBT community. Are they going to accept me for everything that I am? Am I going to have to put on this performance? And she was really, really worried about me finding good love in my life. Um, she was really protective over that, you know, and it was hard, you know, I've definitely had some relationships that didn't work out because I was trans, you know, whether I dated women who identified as lesbians and they were like, you know, you're a man, I can't do this. Dating women who identified as straight and they're like, you're trans, I don't think I can do this. You know, there was a, there was a loneliness that, that happened for, for a while. Knowing your story, not only were you so fortunate to have a loving, supporting family, but you found love in a really exciting way, too. I I did. So I met my wife at the time. And so I was on Facebook and I'm like perusing through people's like friends list, you know, and I come across this woman and she has this sign up that says like like queer, like coming out queer. She was just so beautiful. And I was like, OK, this is like a queer identified woman. This is what I need. I need like this queerness. That's what I'm looking for. I reached out to her and I just said, hey, how you doing? And she ignored me. And when she reached back out to me, all we did was talk through Facebook messaging. And in those three days, I was like, I love this girl. I'm going to marry her. So, you know, I met her. I proposed after two weeks, married her after five months. We were married for five years. Uh, we have a daughter who's two years old. And Kim and I, you know, we did a lot of really good work together. How did your life change once you transitioned and how did that impact your work? One of the significant ways in which my life has changed is that I have had to be really deliberate and really intentional about thinking about what it means to walk as a man in this world. You know, because what I didn't want to do is to get caught up in the privileges that are afforded to us as men. And I've gotten pushback from that. I said, oh, because you're black, you know, black men don't have privilege. That's a bunch of BS. We do. If you're a man in this world, if you're a masculine person in this world, there is privilege that you are given. Okay, and this privilege may shift for different people because of your race or your size or your sexuality, but there's absolutely privilege that is afforded to men. And so for me, I've been trying to navigate that space. What does it mean to be a man in this world? 
And so oftentimes you ask that and you get these very traditional answers like, oh, to be a man means to protect. It means to provide. It means to be there for your family. I say, yeah, okay, that's true. But, you know, most of the people that I know, the women I know are protectors and providers and who are heading up their families. So this isn't something that's exclusive to masculinity. This is just what what responsible adults have to do in this world. Right. When you have people who are dependent on you. So. What outside of that makes me a man? So I'd ask these questions and a lot of the answers I would get is basically like being a man and being a masculine person is just antithetical to being feminine. It's just the opposite of femininity. So I'm like, okay, so so what you're telling me is that manhood and masculinity can only be defined in its relationship to something else. So, but how does it stand on its own? So how do I begin to curate this organic masculinity, something that's really tethered to my spirit and is not um, defined by its relationship to femininity, that is not defined by how much it can control, how much it can protect, how much it can possess, not defined by how better you are than the next guy. What does that look like? What does that mean? And that's something that I'm constantly thinking about, thinking about how me as a queer identified man start to create a blueprint for the future for other men, for other masculine people. That is so powerful and so interesting because what you're doing here is that you're bringing into sharp relief the struggles of masculinity in this changing society. What are you seeing in terms of men struggling against the perception of masculinity and what it's supposed to look like? Yeah, you know, I see that struggle a lot, particularly when I'm traveling and I'm doing my talks. And usually at the end, I'll have some young guys want to come up to me. They'll never want to talk to me during the Q&A portion. They'll wait until everybody's gone and then they'll pull me aside and talk to me about their own feelings around their masculinity. And what I'm finding is like a lot of men, no matter how like masculine they are, they're presenting no matter how straight and like burly they are. A lot of men feel really confined to these ideas of masculinity because masculinity can be so small. You know, this whole idea that the only valid emotions that a man can feel is lust and anger. When we do that, what we're doing is we're taking away a man's humanity. Because in order to be a fully functional and healthy human being means to be in touch with this huge variety of emotions that we have and that we should be, you know, honored to be able to express. And we take that away from people and then it starts, it turns into resentment. It turns into violence. This whole idea that men have to be men for other men, this constant kind of competition. Like there are so many men who are worn out, who are tired of it. What does it mean for you to be a man for yourself? What does it mean for you to be a man for the women and feminine folks in your life? Like shifting this this framework around masculinity. Coming up on Radical Imagination, we continue the conversation with writer, journalist, and activist Teek Milan about the importance of re-examining gender. More when we come back.
Are you someone who wants to create a society where all can participate and prosper? Visit our website at radicalimagination.us to take action and connect with campaigns and organizations around issues covered by this podcast. It's crucial that we get support to continue to lift up stories and solutions to address our most pressing problems. To do this, we need you to tell your friends and family about Radical Imagination. Ask them to subscribe, share, and comment on their chosen podcast platform. You can also find us on the Race and Wealth Podcast Network. Like what you've heard today? Tell us about it. Go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review Radical Imagination. And thank you. And we're back with LGBTQ activist, writer, and journalist, Teek Milan. I'm curious whether there are other big lessons that you have learned in getting to this what is a good man? What is organic masculinity? The tough, fundamental questions. I'm working on a book right now that's really looking at queerness as a blueprint towards freedom. Queerness is about being free. It's about saying these little boxes that you put me in because of my gender or what my body looks like or what my race is, or what my sexuality is, doesn't work. It's about being able to define yourself. So like humanity, and I think I think like humanity and gender is something that is self-determined and is not imposed. And that's what I've seen queer people do. Queer people say, you told me I was supposed to be this way, but I'm actually telling you that I am this way. This is who I am and this is what feels good to me. There's so much love and space and acceptance in queer community that says, hey, this is who you, this is your pronoun. This is how you present yourself. This is who you love. This is how you love. Guess what? You like it. I love it, as my mother used to say. Right. And I think that that is something that's really radical. When we give people the space to define themselves for exactly who they are and we love them for exactly who they are. Looking farther back than the time of your own transition, can you tell us about the socioeconomic challenges and discrimination that the LGBTQ community faces and what has changed, if anything, since the days of the Stonewall riots in the 1960s? I think the representation that we've seen in media has been great. Gay and lesbian folks have been introduced into people's homes now for for decades, which I think has really helped change the culture to something that is more accepting and more loving. Um, We're seeing that happen with trans folks, which is good. But I think it's also important to know that transgender people are still four times more likely to live in poverty and are eight times more likely to live in poverty if you're black. 41% of transgender people have tried to commit suicide. And this isn't just like suicidal ideation. This is actually attempted to commit suicide. And what I think a lot of people don't know, the majority of black LGBT people live in the South. And the South has some of the worst protections for LGBT people. So the shift is happening. But I think what's happening is we're not really paying a lot of attention to the nuance there's still a lot of barriers and it's because of this like heteronormative gaze. And I think once we can bust through that and start to understand that gender is not a binary experience, it is a spectrum of identities and it's a spectrum of expression and none of it is wrong, then we'll start to see the statistics start to really shift in a really radical way where like the socioeconomic place of LGBT people is starting to be on par with our cisgender and heterosexual brothers and sisters. There is growing concern in this country and fear about deadly attacks against transgender Americans, particularly trans women of color. 
And in this regard, according to a report by the Human Rights Campaign, at least 25 people from the transgender community were killed in 2019, many of them being transgender women of color. Oh, yeah. This has been happening for a while. And I think that never went up. There are trans people who are being brutalized, who have unfairly lost their lives, who we don't count because they were misgendered. Last year, more than two dozen transgender people were killed. And And what we find, we talk about hate crimes. There's studies from the National um, Anti-Violence Project that shows that the majority of hate crimes committed against LGBTQ people is committed against trans people. So that's why there has been like this shift in LGBTQ advocacy towards really focusing on trans folks. Not to say that gay and lesbian folks have arrived, but it's like gay and lesbian folks kind of have a seat at the table in a way that trans folks don't. And there's some space there for us to really start looking at trans people. Right. Um, But this is a trend that we're seeing, particularly with, with black trans women. And it's happening with black trans women because black trans women kind of sit at these intersections of so many things. So you're talking about racism and misogyny and misplaced homophobia and transphobia. All these black trans girls, these beautiful black trans girls are sitting right here at this place and something explodes for them. There's that. And there's also looking at this conversation around men and masculinity and men not being able to have the space to really express their sexuality outside of something that looks like really heteronormative. As a culture, we don't give men that kind of space. And because men don't have space to express their emotions in a way that is really healthy, what comes out? Anger. So they get angry and they start killing and hurting the women who they are supposed to protect and who they love the most. Most of the black trans women who are killed are killed by their lover. And for me, when I look at it, what it does get down to is us really having conversations about radicalizing our ideas of gender and busting open these little small spaces that we are putting men in so that men can be better to themselves and have more love for themselves so that they can love other people better. You know, ordinarily I would end here, but you mentioning being a father made me wanted to ask one more question. Sure. How has becoming a father impacted, if at all, your ideas of gender? You know, I refer to my, my daughter as my daughter. You know, she was assigned female at birth, and I've gotten some pushback from folks in the queer community, like, you know, I'm I'm assigning her gender, and this is going against me talking about gender is self-determined. Gender is self-determined, but my baby is two. <laughs> so as of right now, she's two. I make her decisions for her. So until she can verbalize something different to me, this is this is what we're doing. Um, and I know that if my daughter ever came to me and was like, Daddy, I'm not your daughter. I'm your son or I'm your child or my pronoun is they or my pronoun is he. It's all good. Like I wouldn't even bat an eyelash. Take part of what I am sensing from you is a capacity to move from your individual experience to the implications to the broader society and always thinking about love and freedom and liberation and what can any of us offer. You have tapped into your superpower. How would you define your superpower? That's a good question. What is my superpower? Being able to adapt and change and also being able to lead with that adaptation. You know, being a model of possibility, I think, has been been my superpower. Um, I get a lot of emails from a lot of people all over the world, from young people and older people, too, about how just being able to see me change um, in a way that's been really open and really uh, vulnerable. That has been my superpower, to be a model of possibility of adaptation and love. 
Thank you, Teek, for talking with us. Thank you. Teek Milan is a writer, journalist, and activist. He joined us from the NPR studios in New York City. Imagination was produced by Futuro Studios for PolicyLink. The Futuro Studios team includes Marlon Bishop, Andreas Caballero, Ruxandra Guidi, Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, Leah Shaw, Lita Hollowell, and Sam Bernitz. The PolicyLink team includes Rachel Gashinga, Glenda Johnson, Fran Smith, Jacob Gulkassian, and Millie Hawk Daniel. Our theme music was composed by Taka Yusuzawa and Alex Segura. I'm your host, Angela Glover Blackwell. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, you can find us online at radicalimagination.us. Remember to subscribe and share. Next time on Radical Imagination. I don't drink the water, but you know what? My family has passed away from cancer. A number of residents in our communities have gotten sick. I bet it's because of the water. We hear from the people who are working to address the lack of access to clean and running water right here in one of the richest nations in the world. That's next on Radical Imagination. <laughs>